We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 153 on Robert Hansen, the Butcher Baker of Alaska, part one. Part one. We just decided this was going to be a two-parter because it looks long. And last time we've been giving you guys hour and 40 episodes. It's too long for you. We need to calm down. Talking too much. (laughs) We we have a lot of side things going on and there's just a lot of information. Yeah. Been hitting you heavy lately. So we're making this one a two-parter. Two-parter. But before we get into it, we got one business thing to address. And it's kind of a little heavy. Yeah. So we don't look at our reviews because sometimes it can hurt our souls. And sometimes it can make us happy. So we just choose not to. So our good old business manager, Jamie, unofficially, (laughs) um, she let us know that we actually got um, a review on one of the episodes that we did, episode 140, on Crystal Theobald, the Why Did You Kill Me documentary. And it was actually from Belinda Lane, who, if you remember from that episode, is Crystal's mother, who uh, Crystal was murdered. Um, And she noted that there was a lot of inaccuracies in what we had listed. So we just wanted to take this opportunity to correct those inaccuracies um, we did note in the episode that there was a lot of conflicting information out there on the web on the web that we weren't able to really nail down a little lot of stuff. Uh, it was hard to figure out a lot of stuff in her personal life because most of it was surrounding her unfortunate murder. Um, but Belinda shared with us that Crystal was born in 1981, and I believe we listed 1982 in the episode. Um, and that she had two daughters and we had mentioned that we didn't know if she was married to one or not, but I think we finally ended it that maybe she was. And she confirmed that she was not married to one, but that they were just friends. So we wanted to take this opportunity to just right those wrongs and say that we're sorry for the inaccurate information that came out of our mouths. Um, Mm -hmm. but we, you know. We're only as good as what we can find on the internet. We do try our best to provide you with as accurate of information as we can gather. But we wanted to make sure that we we took the time to to provide the correct information since Belinda was kind enough to share it with us. That's right. So that is all on that. Do you have anything else business? I, uh not really. I would just like to say that I do look at our reviews and like with the notes people leave just on like a bi-monthly basis <laughs> yeah and she doesn't share them with me because i have a hard time i with do what, what most of them are nice most of them are nice and we do appreciate i really appreciate because i always think the worst yeah we're putting ourselves out there and that's always hard to do you know because we're not perfect especially like we are a rarity we don't overproduce we say things wrong all the time we make stupid things i i don't know how to produce professionally uh you know podcast stuff so i'm a little weary about looking at that stuff but rachel does share the good ones with me and we i love to hear it it makes my heart burst with joy 
So if you wanted to give us a five-star review, I tell you from the bottom of my soul, it makes me just jump for joy. Yes, it does. She's very excited when we get good reviews. (laughs) So please leave them. It really does help uh, everyone. (laughs) And my (laughs) My self-esteem, number one. (laughs) Yeah, the most. (laughs) Okay, well, so we're going to we're going to talk about the butcher baker. We're going to end it at the victims for this episode. Is that correct, Rachel? So uh, this part one is pretty much going to go through up into him getting caught. And then in part two, we will detail the victims and then go into his imprisonment. Spoiler alert. And that stuff. And most people, I feel like, like, this is definitely one that I've heard of. Like, the fact that he's from Alaska it's right. It's an odd one. There's not very many people in Alaska. I had heard of it, but I don't think I realized the extent to what was going on. And I feel like it wasn't highly publicized. Right. I know there was like, a it's movie. Not, there with, is. And uh... I'll talk about it at the bottom. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the bottom. You, I mean, you can say who's in it now, if you know, have you seen John it? Cusack, right? He's Yeah. He's the guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Well, I want to see it now. (laughs) Well, then let's have a movie night and pop it off. Yes. Let's try to do that before part two so we can give a critique. Oh, yes. Okay. (laughs) I love that. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and get us started. I would love to do that. Uh, Early life for Robert Hansen. He was born in Esterville, Iowa at Coleman Hospital on February 15th, 1939. He was the oldest of two children to an American mother and a Danish father. His mother's name was Edna Margaret Hansen, and his father was Christian or Chris Hansen. Oh, Chris Hansen's my friend. Uh, this guy's he not. He doesn't know it, but me and Chris Hansen are friends. This Chris Hansen owned a bakery in Esterville. And he forced Robert to work long hours at the family bakery while also subjecting him to ridicule and mockery. And his mother was compliant in this treatment of her son. So Robert grew up learning a lesson from his parents that would shape his later beliefs. And that was that men were in charge and women were weak. Mm, Not great. No, (laughs) Mm. not great at all. To his parents, he was a disappointment. He was naturally left-handed, but his parents saw that as a deviance, which I feel like that used to be a thing. And I wonder if maybe it like carried over from the Danish side, because you know how sometimes those kind of uh, beliefs took a little bit longer to get spread Out. worldwide that it's not true. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I don't know what, what was up with that. <laughs> Well, my but, I think I've said this before, maybe, but I believe my brother should have been left-handed. And my mom forced him to use his right hand. I don't think it was, like, because she thought it was deviant. I just thought it was because she thought life would be easier for him if he was right-handed. Because it is more difficult. Like, what kind of scissors are you going to use? You got to get special ones. Like, you know, stuff like that. 
but my husband's left handed. His his penmanship, my brother, is Atrocious. shitty. And it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian's like ambidextrous. So I think he had some of that where he was forced to use his right, right hand too. Oh, so but he is like naturally left handed. Hmm. It's I did not, not weird. that. I mean, yeah. I think I don't he just does some things with his left hand and some things with his right. It's weird. We should interview him. I want to know what life is like as a left-handed person. I mean, he uses regular scissors with his right hand. We don't have any I don't know. I don't think I've ever paid attention. I don't even know which hand he writes with. I just know that he is left-handed in some ways and right-handed in others, but that I think he is left-handed and just had to learn certain things with his right. What about like catching a baseball? Does he have a left-handed glove? We don't have gloves. We don't play baseball. I mean, he did when he was a kid. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Gross on Adam. Ask ask him these questions and i need to i'll throw something at him tomorrow and see i don't want to ask him i want to just see (laughs) Uh, yeah i don't know so i think that happens sometimes but not because people think it's deviant any longer just because like you said it maybe is assumed that they're right-handed i don't know well this this is why this is a two-parter oh yeah this right here (laughs) so His parents, though, they forced him to only use his right hand, underscoring to Robert that he was born wrong, which is terrible. Yeah. He credits having to use his non-dominant hand for developing a debilitating stutter, which. This is. They're not connected. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe just being told that he was born wrong and then like being treated like crap is why he developed the stutter. But. I don't really see how being forced to use your non-dominant hand is going to give you a stutter. (laughs) Could be just nerves, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the family moved to Richmond, California in 1942, but then returned to Iowa in 1949, settling in Pocahontas. And in his youth, Robert was painfully shy, had a stutter, and severe acne that actually left him permanently scarred. So That's the worst. Yeah. Rough. Throughout childhood and adolescence, Robert was described as being quiet and a loner, and he had difficult uh, a difficult relationship with his domineering father. He was ridiculed by his peers for his stutter and his appearance. He was particularly affected by the young girls that would mock him. He started to practice both hunting and archery and often found refuge in these pastimes. In 1957, Robert enlisted in the United States Army Reserve and served for one year before being discharged. That's not very long. He later worked as an assistant drill instructor at a police academy in Pocahontas, Iowa. P.S. Cutest name. Didn't know that was the name of a, a city. A place. That's cute. There, he began a relationship with a younger woman, and he married her in the summer of 1960. Isn't that the summer of love? 1960 yeah i don't know i made that up did you make that up is that a thing is there like an actual year i'm pretty sure that is called the summer of love the summer of love it was 1967 i was seven years off. oh yeah damn oh because it was sorry i don't know why i'm reading about this right now anyways so he was 21 
On December 7th, 1960, wow, that was a lot of weird words. On December 7th, 1960, when he was 21, Robert was arrested for burning down a Pocahontas County Board of Education school bus garage. And it was revenge for his unpopularity in high school and being mistreated by the community. But you're out. I don't know. What are you doing? He's got some issues Hmm. some issues he had convinced a young bakery employee to help him and when that boy later confessed robert was arrested so like do your ish on your own right (laughs) don't get children to help you he served 20 months of a three-year prison sentence in anamosa state penitentiary And during his incarceration, he was diagnosed with manic depression and periodic schizophrenic episodes. The psychiatrist who made the diagnosis noted that Robert had an infantile personality. So that's why he, like, went back and burned this school building because he's, like, got infantile thought processes. Mm -hmm. Um, He was obsessed with getting back at people he felt had wronged him. Robert's wife filed for divorce while he was incarcerated so he was in prison and going through a divorce suck on that robert yeah rough rough stuff man maybe don't be stupid right (laughs) just a just a thought over the next few years robert was jailed several times for petty theft despite all this robert somehow convinced another local woman to marry him so he was fine with the ladies apparently In 1967, he moved to Anchorage, Alaska with his second wife, and they had two kids. In Anchorage, he was well-liked by his neighbors, opened up a bakery, and set several local hunting records. Things were seemingly going just fine, but some cracks started to show through that happy veneer. And is he posing here with a ram skull? It's uh, it's their horns. Yeah. Okay. I don't know whose horns. They're big. (laughs) They are big. Huh. I don't Um, know whose they are. In December 1971, Robert was arrested twice, first for abducting and attempting to rape an unidentified housewife, and then for raping an unidentified prostitute. He pled no contest to assault with a deadly weapon in the offense involving the housewife. The rape charge involving the prostitute was dropped as part of a plea bargain. Robert was sentenced to five years in prison. After serving six months of his sentence, he was placed on a work release program and released to a halfway house. Can you believe that? No. Can you believe that? What's the point? raping two people? And what's the point of like, is this just a sham? Give him five years and let him out in six months too? Like, that's ridiculous. In 1976, Robert pleaded guilty to larceny after he was caught stealing a chainsaw from an Anchorage Fred Meyer store. He was sentenced to five years in prison and required to receive a psychiatric treatment for his bipolar disorder. The Alaska Supreme Court reduced his sentence after 16 months again, and he was released with time served, which was the deal worked out if he agreed to treatment. So again, a slap on the wrist. Yeah. 16 months so six months and 16 months now the second thing was stealing a chainsaw from a store 
And he got more time for that than he did and for he raping got someone. For raping two women. I mean, granted, he was only charged with the one, but still. Like, what the what kind of justice system is this? That is I wild. don't know. It is insane. And it's insane that he has been in trouble, but doesn't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of why he continues to escalate things because he's basically getting away with shit. Right. Getting caught, but still getting away with shit. Mm-hmm. Also, his wife, Darla, stood by her husband when he was arrested and convicted of theft. She did the same when he was he had gone to jail for the abduction of the housewife and the prostitute. Darla was a woman of faith, and she felt that she could get him back on track. In fact, every time he was arrested, he would start visiting the church with his wife for a while. And she just thought... <laughs> I mean, she didn't believe in divorce, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you don't believe in divorce, I think you will put up with a whole lot of shit. Yeah. And she was putting up with a whole lot of shit, just thinking that he was going to maybe come back around. And at that point, your only salvation is church, right? I mean, that's your only light at the end of the tunnel. Let's get him to church and maybe things will work itself out. Yeah, I think that yes. was the thought. the thought there. The 800-mile Trans-Alaska oil pipeline was being built, attracting upwards of 28,000 men to work on the construction until it was finished in 1977. In short order, strip clubs sprung up with names like Booby Trap, Gentleman's Retreat, and the Great Alaskan Bush Company. Ew. Those are some great strip club names. Why are you not laughing? The Great Alaskan Bush Company? Come on. That's great. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> really? I loved it. The women who <laughs> The women who worked in the strip clubs were not locals. Mainly from the continental United States, they were drawn by the temptation of some easy money. So they were going where there was a bunch of men who were away from their women or just alone out there, and they were up there to make some money. They would perform a circuit up the West Coast to Alaska and back again, never staying anywhere long enough for the patrons to get too attached to them. However... This transience also meant that when a stripper or sex worker went missing, no one really thought too much of it because they thought they may have just returned down to the States to resume their other jobs or that they were working that circuit and go had gone to another place. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to kind of keep track of people. That's a perfect storm. Sure is. Robert Hansen would spend time in what was called the Tenderloin District, a place ruled by organized crime and the sex trade. If the women in strip clubs did nothing more than take off their clothes, they could still be good girls. Whenever they Quotes. would su- quote, oh, quote yeah. the good girls, quote, good girls. <laughs> Whenever they would suggest they were open to sex work, he would offer far. Um, he would offer far over the going rate to leave with him. Once they were in his car, he would pull a gun and assault them. 
He told them that if they complied with everything and told no one, he would release them. And when he was done, which might take days, um, if they fought back or argued, he had to murder them. He would sometimes pack them chained onto his Piper Cub airplane and fly them into the remote wilderness. There he would release them. If they tried to escape, this was his invitation to hunt them. And I think this is the... Whenever you think of the butcher baker, this is what I always think of is he's hunting people. Mm -hmm. Robert was an award winning bow hunter and took pride in bagging trophies after all. Last podcast on the left noted that Robert contested the accusation of hunting his victims. Yes, he murdered them, but he didn't give them a head start. <laughs> he, he killed them <laughs> at once because they weren't obeying him. If you believe the word of a convicted serial murderer. So there you have it. I think that some of it kind of seems like he did hunt. I'm sure he did. People. So he probably couldn't it couldn't stop himself. That's the thrill. Yeah. If you've gone that far, why wouldn't you do that? Ugh. That is rough. That would be a terrible way to go. And that would be terrifying to be like let go and then not let go enough to actually get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. Terrible. It is believed by authorities that Robert's first murder victim was 18-year-old Celia Van Zanten. Van Zanten was kidnapped on December 22nd, 1971, and she froze to death in the wilderness after escaping from her abductor. Her body was discovered on December 25th. Celia's abduction occurred three days after Robert assaulted a prostitute and four days before the prostitute turned him in. While there are some similarities to Robert's modus operandi and Celia's abduction, there is no conclusive evidence that he was her attacker and he himself denied involvement in her death. So I just want to say real quick that he had this kind of idea of like good girls and bad girls and basically like strippers weren't necessarily bad girls but the sex workers he deemed bad girls and he didn't have respect for them and he wanted to take them out now like his wife she was a good girl mm -hmm. and he kind of labeled people that way which is disgusting. <laughs> so so he had his own moral code that he would go But by. he didn't even follow his moral code, which we'll kind of get into with some of the victims. And I think with Celia, that's the thing. Like, he would admit certain murders, but not admit other ones that were pretty clearly him. And it was the women that didn't fall into his bad girl category. Mm -hmm. He would be like, I didn't do that. Yeah. If they fell into his bad girl category, he would be like, yes, I murdered them. But for the ones that didn't fall into that, he denied murdering them. Wow. Yeah. Ridiculous. On June 13th, 1983, Robert offered 17-year-old Cindy Paulson $200 to perform oral sex, and when she got into the car, he pulled out a gun and drove her to his home in Muldoon. There, he held her captive and raped and tortured her. 
She later told police that after Robert chained her by the neck to a post in the house's basement, he took a nap on a nearby couch. What? Can you, so, can you imagine that? So good girls and bad girls are a thing. So if she was if she was a prostitute and was okay with giving him sex, that was bad. But yet he could rape and torture and that was fine. Right? I'm just trying to get my mind. I mean, this. yeah, but you can't, you can't like, yeah, yes. It okay. doesn't make any sense. He's a hypocrite for sure. Okay. <laughs> but he's also a man and he thinks that they are superior mm-hmm. to women. So I don't, I don't know, but can you imagine being chained in a basement by the neck to a pole and then the bro taking a nap on the couch? No. And not being able to get out. When he awoke, he put her in his car and took her to Merrillfield Airport, where he told her that he intended to, quote, take her out to his cabin, which was a shack in the Nick River area um, of the Matanuska, a man, Matanuska, Susitna Valley, and that place is accessible only by boat or bush plane. Cindy crouched in the backseat of the car with her wrist cuffed in front of her body, and she saw a chance to escape when Robert was busy loading the cockpit of his airplane, and that was a Piper PA-18 Super Cub. While Robert's back was turned, Cindy crawled out of the backseat, opened the driver's side door, and she ran towards the street, 6th Avenue. Mm -hmm. Get a girl. Cindy later told police that she had left her blue sneakers on the passenger side floor of the sedan's back seat as evidence that she had been in the car. That is so smart. Right. Robert panicked and chased her, but Cindy made it to 6th Avenue first and managed to flag down a passing truck. The driver, Robert Yount, alarmed by Cindy's disheveled appearance, stopped and picked her up. He drove her to the Mush Inn where she jumped out of the truck and ran inside. While she pleaded with the clerk to phone her boyfriend, quote. That was actually like her pimp. I'm I'm pretty sure. sure. That's what I was thinking that meant. Um, (laughs) At the timber, uh, big timber motel, Yount continued on to work where he called the police to report the barefoot handcuffed girl. When Anchorage Police Department or APD officers arrived at the Mush Inn, they were told that Cindy had taken a cab to the big timber motel APD officers arrived at room 110 of the Big Timber Motel and found Cindy, still handcuffed and alone. She was taken to APB headquarters, where she described the perpetrator, his plane, his car, and the inside of his house. Robert was questioned by APD officers, denied the accusation, stating that Cindy was just trying to cause trouble for him because he would not pay her extortion demand. Although Robert had several prior run-ins with the law, his meek demeanor and humble occupation as a baker, along with an alibi from his uh, friend, John Henning, kept him from being considered as a serious suspect. You've got to be shitting me. For like a minute. Okay, good. I was going to say, God. Yeah, but they didn't believe her. That's awful. Isn't it? And I'm pretty sure that's kind of something that happened 
more than once uh, based on some things like notes that I read, but I wasn't really sure how to add them in here. Mm -hmm. Just that he didn't murder everyone. He sexually assaulted a lot of people and they were all sex workers and nobody took them seriously. That's so terrible. And I'm sure for Alaska, especially with all of these you know, strip clubs coming in. There's a lot more riffraff. If you would say they are probably dealing with a lot more stuff. They're just over it in general, the police department, because they probably haven't had to deal with that. And the, the Plus workers they were probably extremely understaffed because oh, their yeah. population boomed by like 28,000 people. And they yeah. didn't like, how do you deal with that as a police department? You know, right. but, but still, but still. like what, what a freaking theme like sex workers never get believed they don't get taken seriously people don't look for them it just really is heartbreaking so i mean she left her freaking shoes in his car she knew what the inside of his house i mean like she knew all of those things can be but they could all be explained if she was trying to extort him so they just like buy that but the fact that she thought, oh, I'm going to leave my shoes in the backseat as like some something to show was that handcuffed. I was there. And yeah. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> was that part of her um, plan to extort him and like get him in trouble with the cops? I mean, I'm sure that's what he said. But if you if you did that as a ploy or whatever, if you went back to your pimp's hotel room you'd take that shit off like you'd be like okay a little bit right you'd have your feet up you'd be taking a shower you'd be doing all those things not be sitting there still handcuffed because you don't have the damn key because they're not your handcuffs yeah jeez right so in comes Detective Glenn Floth of the Alaska State Troopers. He had been part of a team investigating the discovery of several bodies in and around Anchorage, Seward, and, man, this word again, the Matanuska susitna Valley area. Nailed it. <laughs> Whoosh. Nothing but that. <laughs> The first of the bodies was found by construction workers near Eglutna Road. Uh, The body, dubbed Eglutna Annie by investigators, has still to this day never been identified. Later that year, the body of Joanna Messina was discovered in a gravel pit near Seward. And in 1982, the remains of 23-year-old Sherry Morrow were discovered in a shallow grave near the Nick River. Now, our dude Glenn believed that all three women had been murdered by the same perpetrator. Glenn had been assigned to the case of the Nick River murders, and he was convinced that there was a serial killer on the loose. So Glenn started looking into the other accusations against Robert and obtained his records from Iowa. Uh Uh-oh, Glenn. Ooh, 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 ooh. Glenn contacted the FBI special agent John Douglas, mind hunter guy. Yeah, mind hunter guy. And requested help with an offender profile based on the three recovered bodies. Douglas thought the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, had a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as victims' jewelry. He also suggested that the assailant might stutter, which is How the f-u-c-k does he know that how that's insanity they're like 
there's something paranormal going on with those people, those profilers. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what? What? How? I want to know for real how. Right. <laughs> Using this profile, Glenn investigated possible suspects until he reached Robert, who fit the profile, and he owned a plane. Supported by Cindy's testimony and Douglas's profile, Glenn and the APD secured a warrant to search Robert's plane, vehicles, and home. On October 27, 1983, investigators uncovered jewelry belonging to some of the missing women as well as an array of firearms in a corner hideaway of Robert's attic. Also found was an aeronautical chart with 37 little X marks on it. Oh my God, that's, oh, that's eerie. Hidden behind Robert's headboard. Many of these marks matched sites where body, bodies had been found previously. Others were discovered later at the locations marked on Robert's murder map. So the dumbass kept them. Him yeah, not all of the X marks that they found. I don't think they were able to actually determine like the exact location based on the x's mm -hmm. you know what i mean so some of them they didn't find anything but yeah wow. so he he just kept a little mappy map behind his headboard and that doesn't necessarily mean because they didn't find anything that the bodies weren't there or that he didn't murder somebody there right yes yeah I mean, they just, I think they weren't, it wasn't exact enough for them to necessarily find it. Or there's animals exactly. and all sorts of things out there. Like, who knows? When confronted with the evidence found in his home, Robert denied it for a while. But he eventually began to blame the women and he tried to justify his actions. Eventually confessing to each item of as evidence as it was presented to him. He admitted to a spree of attacks against Alaskan women starting in 1971. Robert's earliest victims were girls or young women, usually between the ages of 16 and 19, and they were not prostitutes, unlike the victims who led to his discovery. So a lot of these women were just girls. assaulted or, yeah, and some of them murdered their young little girls. Wow. What's his wife got to say about all that? Well, we're going to talk about that in part two oh a little my bit gosh. because that was my, you know, that's how, I don't know why, but I always focus when they're married and they have children or even just married. I'm like, how, how does that happen? <laughs> how do you truly not know that that is going on? And I, so I looked that up a little bit and included what I could find because, you know, that was my first thing. I was like, I got to know what's going on with this lady right is she still going to church or what like yeah oh that clearly gosh. did not work <laughs> what a cliffhanger we've left you on yeah so in part two we're gonna detail all of the victims what happened to them when they went missing when their bodies were found um go through that people that are still missing there's just one, I think, unidentified person, um, and that was that uh, Eklutna, Eklutna mm -hmm. Annie, which they call because of where they found her. Um, they still haven't been able to identify her, but I think, too, they probably didn't find all of his victims. 
Right. Oh, probably not. We'll go through the information that we have about his victims. Then we'll talk about his imprisonment and then his death and then about Miss Darla. Miss Darla. And uh, what we know about her. And then we're going to critique the movie, The Frozen Ground, starring Nicolas Cage (laughs) and John Cusack. (laughs) Yes, we have to watch it. That's our homework. That is our homework. You guys will watch it too if you want to. (laughs) Yeah, then we can talk about it. We want to know. I would love John Cusack. I love John Cusack too. A lot. He's good. Do you ever watch that? What's that movie? Is it 1408? No. Yeah? I think he's in that movie, but he's in another. Identity, I think, is the one I'm thinking of. The one where he's the multiple personality. Yes. And he's that heavier creepy guy at the end spoiler alert sorry i'm pretty sure that we went to go see that together at a drive-in does that spark a memory for you yeah i was freaking blown away by that movie i remember not seeing it coming (laughs) yeah that was like a sixth sense moment i feel like for us yeah like i remember being like what oh yeah we were like we were sophomores in high school yeah, that, that was a good movie. I remember very much enjoying that movie. I have not seen it since then, probably. And then but... it was really sad because then that meant that John Cusack was not even real. And I love him. I know. He Ew. needs to be real. I love him, too. Huh. So Okay. Well, do you want to say your sources? Everybody watch The Frozen Ground with us. Um, Sure. I used Wikipedia, grunge.com. The Cinemaholic, All That's Interesting, Washington Post, and Last Podcast on the Left. Lovely. I didn't listen. I didn't listen to their podcast, but some of the things that I used were quoted as being theirs. So okay, shout them out. Mm Hmm. As you do, they got book deals and all kinds of jazz. Yeah, they do like live recordings and stuff, right? Ooh, good for them. Yeah. Yeah, that'll we'll never scary. be we'll never get there, but that's cool. No. <laughs> that's cool for them. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed episode 153 on Robert Hansen, the Butcher Baker of Alaska Part One. We hope you all have a great week, and we will see you next week for part two. Bye. Bye. <laughs>